Hi, I'm Osnat Katz. And I'm Robin Skagel. This is The Sound of Astronomy, where we bring you news, views and interviews from the forefront of astronomy. In this episode, we look at a planned mission to predict space weather, find out why lasers shine over Sussex skies, learn more about the Royal Astronomical Society's plans to celebrate its 200th anniversary, and look forward to meteor showers in November and December 2018. Right now, the sun is at a deep minimum, with virtually no spots on its surface. But in a few years' time, it's expected to be active again, with the potential to cause catastrophic disruption to our electronic systems. ESA is planning a new satellite called Lagrange, which will act as a sort of weather ship deep in space to warn us of space weather events. Paul Sutherland spoke to ESA's head of space weather, Yossi Luntama, about the plans. You're in charge of the Lagrange mission. Now, this is a mission that's planned by ESA to study the sun and its effects on us. Um, how will the mission differ from other solar missions, such as uh, Parker Solar Probe that NASA launched in August, and ESA's uh, delayed solar orbiter that's due to launch in 2020? Uh, the main difference between uh, these two are uh excellent science missions and the Lagrange mission is uh, that the Lagrange is actually an operational mission or at least the objective of the Lagrange is to provide data for operational space weather services. So this means that uh, um, we do not that much target science uh, or scientific objectives for this mission but we target applications uh, that will give us operational space weather information and space weather forecasts, uh, which will then help us to actually um, protect our infrastructure in real time. So when there is a solar event, uh, we will immediately get the information and we will then be able to uh, provide this information to the people who are operating the infrastructure, which could be harmed by this solar event. Right. So you're not sort of studying the sun in its own right, for its own sake, but you are looking at the effects that the sun produces um, and that might uh, damage our infrastructure, as you say. What what sort of problems can this space weather, as you describe it, what, what sort of problems can it cause? Well, the obvious impact, which I think everybody can uh, easily understand, is that uh, when we have a solar event when we have um, energetic particles ejected by the sun or we have these solar um, coronal mass ejections where a huge plasma cloud is ejected by the sun towards the earth uh, these events will impact anything that we have in space so uh, um, i think the obvious hazard is for example uh, human spaceflight uh, where the astronauts uh, will normally uh, seek uh, shelter where there is a, uh, a solar particle event. So these very energetic uh, solar protons uh, might actually cause uh, a radiation hazard to the astronauts. Same particles can impact uh, spacecraft uh, electronics. So our satellites in space um, can be uh, malfunctioning as a result of these uh, energetic particle impacts, which could cause either a transient uh, anomaly, which can be then be corrected afterwards, or in the worst case, we might actually lose a satellite because of permanent damage to the electronics. But then um, the part which is not so obvious and uh, uh, will impact our um, daily life if we have a major solar event uh, is that um, there are two, two elements which, uh, which impact our kind of our environment. One is that the, the upper layers of the atmosphere will change during these events. And uh, while we were talking about the atmosphere at the uh, uh, altitude of 100 kilometers and above, uh, so no impact on human life on Earth, but radio signal propagation uh, through the atmosphere at these times will change. And that basically means that uh, our satellite telecommunications uh, our satellite-based navigation systems, and also uh, 
ground-to-ground uh, -ground or ground-to-air HF radio communications will be disturbed. And uh, then it doesn't matter whether the satellite in space is operational or not. If we cannot connect to it, if we cannot make a contact, then anything, any service, whether it's uh, data communications or uh, navigation by satellite communication, will not be available during these times. Right. And, of course, on Earth we are protected as humans by, the, by a sort of magnetic shield, a natural magnetic shield around the Earth. Um, but am I right in thinking that uh, there have been instances in history where um, sort of the electric grid, um, electricity grid has been damaged by solar events, I think notably in Canada in the late 80s? Yeah, this is this is maybe the final uh, impact, which is uh, most non-obvious when you think about the solar activity. But uh, yes, that's absolutely correct. So basically, the same magnetic field that is protecting us from the solar particles and the solar wind, it's disturbed uh, by these solar events. And this disturbance of the magnetic field and the um, current systems within the magnetic field uh, by uh, charged particles, uh, the electrons and protons inside the magnetic field, they create this kind of a transformer effect where one part of the transformer is in space, other part of the transformer is any long conducting uh, um, structure on Earth, uh, and the power grids are very long and very conducting structures. And that means that basically during these events, um, there may be a DC current which is induced into the power grids, and the transformers in the power grids are not designed for this. Uh, so if the DC current gets too high, uh, the transformer may be damaged. So potentially it's quite scary when you think how much our civilization depends on technology. Um, and we sort of take the sun for granted and we don't, um, well obviously you don't, but I mean, <laughs> people, people take it all for granted and don't realize that there is a certain amount of vulnerability there in the system. Yeah, I mean, uh, definitely. Uh, fortunately, these big events are rare. So uh, we do not normally uh, suffer uh, from the solar events. Only when the events get very big, like you mentioned the uh, event in uh, 1989, uh, which caused the power grid uh, transformer failure in Canada. Uh, and the whole uh, Quebec area was actually in a blackout because of this. Uh, these types of events happen uh, occasionally, um, not even every decade, but uh, but basically uh, once per uh, some tens of years, we might have an event like this. And then there are the monster events, uh, which only happen once uh, uh, 400 or 200 years, actually. We have not seen many of those, so we don't really know how often they might happen. But, uh, but they do happen, we know that for mm -hmm. sure. Uh, and uh, when the next one comes, uh, it would be better that we are ready for that. Sure. Well, okay, well let's turn to the, the mission itself. I don't know, what, what stage is the mission at? Is it, It's on the planning stage still, isn't it? Well, yeah, it's, it's in the planning stage. So in ESA we have a certain uh, um, a structure of how we prepare space missions. So at the moment, uh, the um, Lagrange mission is uh, in the uh, what we call a consolidation of the planning. So uh, we have uh, the European industry and a number of research institutes working on uh, finalization of the plan for how the mission will look like, what kind of a spacecraft we will send to the uh, uh, Lagrange, fifth Lagrange point, um, how the instruments uh, that we want to have on board the spacecraft will look like, uh, so we are trying to, so we're working uh, towards uh, making sure that everything fits together, uh, everything works together, uh, and it will be feasible to uh, then uh, in the next uh, phase of the mission to actually build the hardware uh, and make it ready for launch. So what sort of window have you got for launch? I mean, when do you see it going up? At the moment, uh, we are talking about the time window, which would be from the end of uh, 2023 to uh, early 2025. So this is roughly the time frame uh, where we foresee that we would be ready for launch. Right. And you said it's called Lagrange because, as you said, it was going to um, 
a spot called the fifth Lagrange point. Can you explain that to people? I mean, it's going to a part of space that no other spacecraft has been to before, I understand. Why is that a special place? Uh, it's, I mean, first of all, uh, for those who uh, will do their homework and check, um, actually, uh, a spacecraft called uh, Stereo B mm. has passed by L5 on the sun. But it didn't stop there, so it, it was uh, just passing by. Uh, uh, but uh, what we are going to do is we are going to fly to this uh, fifth Lagrange point. It's a point, it's one of those points where the um, um, gravitational pull of the sun and the earth uh, are in balance. Mm -hmm. uh, for the Lagrange point, uh, for the fifth Lagrange point, you actually also have to take the orbit mechanics into account. Otherwise, you will not really understand uh, why it's a balance point, but it's a point, it's actually a relatively large area. Uh, my colleagues call it the plateau uh, in the um, gravitational field of the sun, where you can park a spacecraft there, and because of this balance between the gravitational forces, it will just simply stay there. It will follow the Earth uh, forever, uh, from a distance of 150 million kilometers on the same orbit around the sun as the Earth. And I suppose because it's over there, it gets a little sort of sideways view of the sun, so it can it can see what's going to be heading towards uh, the planet. Yeah, I mean, the, um, at the moment we have um, space weather instruments uh, in what is called the first Lagrange point, which is a point which is a uh, similar point of equilibrium uh, between the gravitational pull of the Sun and the Earth, between the Sun and the Earth. Mm. And this point is very close to the Earth, it's only 1.5 million kilometers away from the Earth uh, towards the Sun. Uh, and when we look at these solar events from the Sun-Earth line, for example from this uh, first Lagrange point, uh, it's a little bit like in football, when you are standing in the goal and somebody kicks the ball very hard towards you, you see it coming, but in this particular case, the ball is not just coming at, uh, two, at the speed of 2,500 kilometers towards you, but it's also expanding while it's coming. And it's very difficult then to estimate uh, how fast the ball really comes and exactly to which direction, which direction it's going. And from uh, this uh, fifth Lagrange point, when we are away from the sun earth line, we can see the ball from the side. So we can uh, much better estimate its speed mm -hmm. uh, and also how directly it's pointed towards the Earth. Okay. Now, you mentioned the stereo spacecraft that NASA sent, and I know it sent two, actually, didn't it? Um, one either side of the Sun, which yeah. sort of give us a, like a stereo view, really, of, of what was... Yeah, that's, that's, that was yeah. the idea. Sure. And so how does, how does this new mission, Lagrange, build on that, or how does it improve the situation? Well, in certain ways, Lagrange is going to be kind of a permanent stereo mission uh, in the fifth Lagrange point. So uh, we have very similar instruments on board uh, as the um, stereo mission had. Mm. And when we combine these measurements and observations from the Sun-Earth line, so for example, from the L1, where we expect that in the future, uh, US will maintain uh, a spacecraft and the capability to monitor space weather, and then the European uh, observations from the L5, we have permanently this uh, stereoscopic view on what's happening in the sun and what's coming towards the Earth. So this is really the, the difference. Uh, but uh, then one particular aspect of this mission is that in order to get this data down uh, on time so that we can immediately issue a warning when something is happening in the sun, uh, that means that this is actually, the Lagrange is the very first uh, operational uh, deep space mission ever that has been built. Is industry and companies, are they, are they ready to respond to the sort of warnings you put out? What's, what sort of early warning system have you got? We are working to, uh, together with the, uh, with the users, so with mm -hmm. the European industry and the companies and also particularly with the European uh, civil uh, contingency uh, authorities. Mm -hmm. So uh, we are um, making preparations and procedures uh, for uh, something happening in the sun and then it's at the end it's up to the um, individual operators of the infrastructure to take the measures that are needed to protect the infrastructure mm -hmm. but we will be able to provide them 
the timely and accurate warnings for yeah. what's happening. That's great. And I, I gather that the United Kingdom is playing quite a big part in this project. United Kingdom is in many ways leading this project. Uh, so United Kingdom is, is, uh, is one of the European countries where uh, preparations for a potential space weather event are actually quite advanced. Uh, so there are already plans and even some exercises uh, that are taking place for this kind of an event. And, uh, and that is why in the, why in the UK, um, the recognition of the need uh, for the uh, data and the observations that the Commission would provide is actually at a very high level. So uh, UK industry is actually leading many of the activities uh, that are, are currently ongoing for the preparation of this mission. Well, thank you very much indeed. All sounds very exciting and thank you for talking to us about it. You're welcome. The Sound of Astronomy is brought to you by the Society for Popular Astronomy. Our aim is to bring astronomy to all. To find out how you can get involved and learn more about the skies, head over to www.popastro.com. Back in September, I went to the Hurstman Sioux Astronomy Festival to help out with the SBA's display there. Hurstman Sioux, near Eastbourne in Sussex, is the site that the Royal Greenwich Observatory moved to in the 1950s to escape the smog and light pollution of London. In 1990, it closed down as a working observatory, but many of the historic telescopes are still in place and the site has now become a vibrant science centre where you can learn about science and astronomy through hands-on demonstrations. The Astronomy Festival is held every year and it offers both amateur astronomers and the general public the chance to camp in the grounds of the site or stay in a and b in the former observatory block. This year both nights were clear and the observers were able to experience the sight of the Milky Way stretching overhead. But although we were warned that laser pointers are banned on the site, which many amateurs use for pointing out objects in the sky, there were frequent bursts from a brilliant green laser beam stabbing the sky in all directions throughout the night. So was someone breaking the rules? The answer became obvious when walking between the observatory and the accommodation. In an open dome there's still a working telescope, the last one remaining since the observatory moved out. In fact this one was even being used during the day and I was invited in by its operator Vicky Smith who showed me around and in case you wonder about the strange background noises they came from her dog who spent the time fast asleep at her feet. This looks like a regular astronomical telescope with a, a finder, a big one, but it's got lots of other bits and pieces and wires and bells and whistles hanging off it. What's it all about? Uh, this is actually a satellite laser ranging facility, so we track Earth observation satellites via short pulse laser. So you can see on the side of the telescope there's the main cathograin uh, receiver, and then on the side of the telescope there's an emit telescope where the laser is emitted from. And that's a little three inch or so refractor, and, but it's got a laser on the end. Yeah, well, the laser's actually sitting in the room downstairs being reflected up by a sequence of uh, coup de mirrors. We track a variety of satellites, but the primary satellites we track are called the geodetic satellites. And they provide, it's a bit of a uh, circular argument, but by tracking them, we tell them where they are, and they in turn will tell us where we are. And then we provide information into another reference frame that's made up by tracking these satellites that goes into telling you where anything in space can be co-located onto the planet. So monitoring the Earth. This is all about monitoring the Earth. Um, why would you want to monitor the Earth? Surely the Earth is just a fixed body and it doesn't move much? Uh, no. So the Earth is a very elastic body being pushed and pulled and forces acting upon it all the time, changing the system, changing the Earth climate. Tides, hydrology, um, crustal movements are happening all the time due to small things. You know, there can be very small effects and very large effects. The satellites we track have to have retroreflector assemblies on board, so that's mirror assemblies to reflect our laser light back at us. These are like sort of uh, very posh cat size that you can find on the road, is that the case? Very posh cat size, yes. So the, the, the light from laser comes straight back and you measure the, the re return time in effect? Yes, it essentially boils down to the time of flight of the photon from, the, from our system to the satellite and back. 
And you, I noticed you were tracking lots of different satellites. How many satellites would you track in the whole night? That's a quite a difficult question, actually. But with re- repeat orbit, we aim to get probably around 70. We can get more than that for 70 passes, shall I say, not 70 satellites. Um, but it's, it's constantly changing. With the navigation satellites being put up by different countries all the time, we get more and more satellites more of the observation satellites being put up so it's the constant the, the numbers constantly in flux and you, which satellite are you tracking at this very moment i'm tracking a satellite called laris it's a small geodetic and how big will that satellite be because it and how far away would it be uh the satellite is oh there we go so um on the screen here you can see the range of the satellite is 1780 odd Kilometers. It's changing all the time, isn't changing it, as the, the satellite moves? Yes. yes. Yeah. And so there'll be a satellite, what, about the size of a car or a washing machine or something like that? Oh, no, Larry's... Uh, to be honest, I can't actually remember how large Larry's is. There you go, it's 36.4 centimetres in diameter. It looks like a golf ball, just uh, not very big, actually. Yes. And you can pick it up over 1,700 kilometres, yes. and it's daytime. Yes. So you can see through... You were telling me you can even see through cloud, almost. Some satellites, yes. And what a lot of people want to know is, we we often use laser pointers to point out uh, things in the sky. What do you do about aircraft? Uh, We've got a three-fold safety system here. Uh, We've got a primary radar. So the radar looks at where the laser beam is firing in space, and if it detects anything in its its path, it will shut down the laser. Um, It's very very fine-tuned, so it will trigger on scintillations in the atmosphere and everything. Um, we also pick up the transponders on the aircraft if they've got transponders and there's somebody on the, the observer always standing on the platform looking out for aircraft to make sure and with a manual control switch so we can switch off. Thanks very much. Pleasure. So thanks to Vicky and the Natural Environment Research Council who run the facility. <laughs> One of the great things about astronomy is that, in theory, it's open to just about everyone. All you need, really, is yourself and clear skies. Although, in practice, in the UK, it might be quite difficult to get the clear skies. Sadly, most of the time, this isn't the case at all, and a range of factors can come together so that some people just don't have the opportunities to get into astronomy even if they would really want to. But fortunately, people are changing that. I spoke to Sheila Kanani, the Outreach and Diversity Officer at the Royal Astronomical Society, about what they're planning to do so that astronomy can really be open to everyone. The RAS is quite well known in amateur astronomy circles but maybe not necessarily to the wide world. Um, So for our listeners, can you fill us in on what the RAS actually does? Yep, so the RAS is a learned society. It began in 1820, and it's there to sort of represent astronomers and geophysicists, um, beginning with, um, well, it actually started as an amateur astronomy society, but over time we represent mostly academics and people within the industries, um, but also do lots of work for for students and teachers and others so obviously mostly working with universities Um, we publish journals we are obviously a membership organization so we have just over 4,000 members which we call fellows and we provide um, policy work education outreach diversity and a bunch of other things for, for everyone who's interested in astronomy and geophysics that sounds like um, quite a brief, and um, your 200th anniversary is coming up soon, isn't it? Yes, it is. It's, it'll be in 2020. Um, and you've started um, an event for that, well, sort of an outreach thing, RAS 200. Um, what's that all about? So RAS 200 was an, an initiative thought up around 2013, 2014, when um, the council and trustees were discussing plans for, for the 200th anniversary, 
and we kind of realized we had um, some money in our reserves, which is always a nice situation to be in. And it was decided that that money would be put into a special funding stream um, specifically for outreach and education in a way that had never been done before to celebrate our 200th anniversary. Um, so RAS 200 was born, the idea being that it's um, a pot of money for people to apply for absolutely brand new um, astronomy and geophysics outreach and education projects working with organisations that we had never worked with before. So grassroots projects, um, obviously needing the expertise of the, um, the amateur astronomy societies and the academics, but we wanted projects that were being led by other organisations. So we specifically targeted um, charities and um, different organisations across the UK and internationally. We started off by visiting lots of different places, mostly holding out of town, um, out of town style meetings in um, in sort of science and discovery centres, um, and advertising this money um, to to different places across the UK, which was good because the RAS has been historically seen as a London centred organisation, but actually we do represent national and international astronomers and geophysicists, so it's nice for us to get out on the road. Um, and that was sort of 2014 when we first started doing. Um, these these sort of uh, tour the tour of the UK advertising um, RAS 200. The um, application form was quite um, easy to fill in to begin with because we wanted to we wanted to make it completely accessible to people that maybe hadn't bid for funding in this way before. And I know often academic funding is quite difficult to to bid for. Um, so we had a, a two a two tier process um, and uh, two tranches of money. Um, and we have awarded 12 different projects, varying sums. Um, and they will be, well, they have been working with us since 2015 and the project will go on until 2022. Um, and the 12 projects are all completely different. And what we really wanted to achieve was showing that the RAS is 200 years old in 2020, but we're looking outwards. We're not looking inwards anymore. We're trying to reflect that we're an outward looking society making plans for the next 200 years and thinking about how we can implement and embed astronomy and geophysics into the kind of wider community for the next 200 years. What are the 12 projects you funded? Okay, so I always forget one, so I'll, um, I'll try and go through them, say alphabetically, but um, let's have a look. So we've got the Astronomical Data Project, which is a, um, it will be a touring exhibition in South Africa. There is the astronomy and geophysics through the traditional culture of Wales, which is a collaboration in Wales, taking astronomy and geophysics to um, cultural festivals, such as, and excuse my pronunciation, such as the Erd and the Eisteddfod. Then there's the Bounce Back um, project beyond prison walls, working with prison inmates. There's Cornwall Sea to Stars, which is a, um, traveling roadshow across Cornwall showcasing astronomy and geophysics specifically the the geophysics of Cornwall so it's all quite um Cornwall related um and that was quite interesting because the chair of RS200 Steve Miller from UCL he went down to Cornwall to kind of pitch RS200 to some some partners there and he didn't appreciate how big Cornwall is and one of the things that Cornwall Sea to Stars want to do is actually visit every single school in Cornwall and show them the astronomy and geophysics um, available to them. Then we're working with the National Youth Agency in Leicester with the Geophysics in a Box project, um, which is all to do with linking football and sport to astronomy and geophysics. Um, so it's taking on the idea that during big football matches, if you put a seismometer in the arena, you can actually measure an earthquake when people, you know, when someone scores. So it all started when Leicester City won the um, premiership a few years ago. And every time Jamie Vardy scored a goal, you could actually see the seismometer readings measuring uh, earthquakes. So it's kind of linking geophysics to football and working with young people at football academies um, and getting them more excited about geophysics. Um, we're working with a group in Galway in, in Ireland, um, similar to the Cornwall project in that it's very kind of Galway specific, 
um, but also they're also planning on working with um, refugees and um, immigrants to Galway um, and, and showcasing astronomy and geophysics in Galway. Then there's the Workers' Educational Association, so um, working with the WEA to implement um, astronomy and geophysics courses and activities for um, mature students who may not have had the opportunity before. There's the Planets 360, which is working with the NSC creative team at, um, uh, at the National Space Centre. Um, they have created a brand new planetarium show based on Holst's The Planets, and that is available to um, mobile planetaria and other um, planetaria internationally as well. So if anyone who's listening has a, a pop-up planetarium and fancies getting the, the modern and the um, traditional Holst the Planets planetarium show written by NSC Creative, then do let us know. We have um, Care for Carers. So that's the small um, charity in Scotland who are taking out carers to do astronomy residentials. Um, uh, Prince's Trust. So Prince's Trust work with young people from challenging backgrounds, trying to get them into employment or um, sort of uh, you know, teaching them skills that they can use when they're when they're uh, in a better position. Um, so, again, they're using astronomy as an icebreaker during their Fairbridge residential courses um, and doing stargazing things. But then they're also using astronomy for, for other projects. So, the Prince's Trust do a Get Started programme, which gives young people skills that they might not have been able to access. So they did a Get Started for Film course. So they were teaching young people about making films and they used astronomy as the focus for these films that they were making. So we had a bunch of young people filming in and around the RAS um, and their films were quite wonderful. It could have it could have been any topic, fiction, nonfiction. And one group did some quite interesting um, filming of um, the public outside of the RAS and asking them about what they thought about you know, conspiracy theories and that kind of thing. And the other group um, filmed a, a, a kind of mystery whodunit within the walls of the RAS, which was quite entertaining. Um, and then we've been working with the National Autistic Society. So that's a, a kind of a meta project because what they've been doing is working with the other project winners to make sure that they their projects are friendly, are autism friendly. So, for example, the NAS have been advising NSC Creative on how to make their planetarium shows more accessible for um, people on the autism spectrum. Um, how many is that? Is that 12? <laughs> that sounds like 12. That sounds like the ones I um, read about before. So so I think that's all of them. If not, then I'll, um, I'll get back to you. <laughs> sure, we'll put it all on the website anyway. Um, that's really, really great. Um, so you mentioned that you wanted to do something a bit different um, with um, RAS 200 and with funding that. What makes RAS 200 so different from other initiatives? From what I can see, there are no other initiatives that currently exist that are the same as RAS 200. And actually, we have realised that we've started to be, uh, we've kind of figureheaded similar initiatives that are coming out in the future. For example, the STFC Wonders funding stream um, has been based relatively heavily on RAS 200. So we kind of um, broke the mould a little bit. Um, and I think the main thing here is being that we have wanted to use the fellowship and academics and the experts in the applications, but we are directly working with the charities or the smaller organisations who are not astronomers and geophysicists. Um, so the majority of our direct contacts are um, have never really worked with astronomers and geophysicists before. And um, we've, you know, sort of become that bridge between the expertise and the actual the, the doers so for example um some of our some of the people some of our key partners are there's a charity called the bounce back foundation who are a construction charity working with prison inmates primarily in london um but we're working with them to um, get more prisoners to do astronomy and geophysics and um, these are normally prisoners um, who would be doing kind of who would be learning skills such as plastering, scaffolding, um, painting. And now we're going into Brixton prison and teaching them about astronomy. And that, those kinds of things have, 
I mean, obviously, there have been smaller initiatives across the country. I know that other astronomers have worked with prisoners before, for example, but doing something on such a grand scale and for such a long time. So each project is five years long. One of the criteria were, was legacy, so that there will be legacy material from every single project that will continue way past our um, bicentenary. And the other kind of um, big aspect of the project has been the fact that we've had an external evaluator working with us right from the beginning so from the conception of the project onwards and they will be working with us until 2022 as well so being able to then evaluate everything from scratch onwards is going to be quite powerful we plan to use that data to you know write um write papers and, and publish um for sort of sci-com sci journals and um you know for the charity sector journals and things as well and i think that that's quite a big deal because often people tack evaluation on uh, you know as a side thought to to any outreach projects whereas doing it from the beginning so they're evaluating each project but they're evaluating rs200 as a whole as well so you know we get quizzed every six months and um, they look at what we do as well as looking at what each of the individual groups are doing as well yeah um definitely the evaluation thing seems really unique i know from my experience as a volunteer and i'm sure some of our listeners um will know as well um sometimes when you're volunteering you can just sort of really get swept up in everything and forget to evaluate um, it which makes the whole thing a lot less effective and hopefully the evaluations can help definitely, with some of that yeah. um so you're coordinating the whole rs200 project aren't you yeah, I'm the staff leader yeah. at the RES. Wow. Um, what are some of the most challenging things you faced in your role? I think at the beginning, it was getting the right people involved. Um, it was very easy to go out to universities and amateur astronomy societies and um, kind of the people that we knew and advertised the project, but trying to reach those charities and the organisations that hadn't wouldn't have ever worked with astronomers and geophysicists it was quite difficult um at the beginning i was doing things like emailing blank sort of blanket emailing um info at addresses that you know often bounced or didn't get to the right people and just trying to um encourage these different groups to put applications in was quite difficult um one of our most successful projects has been one a small charity up in scotland called care for carers who um, are now offering astronomy residentials to carers so that they can have some time away from their caring responsibilities and they i i went to edinburgh and i met them and they really were worried about putting an application in and i'm so glad they did because it has been so powerful um, and the the outcomes from that have been brilliant so getting these groups to work with us in the first place wasn't easy um, we had to be we had to make sure we were as, as accessible as possible. And I think astronomers and geophysicists have often got kind of or come with kind of like an air of elitism without even, you know, without us trying to. People always think, oh, physics is really hard and astronomers are really smart and they wouldn't want to chat to us kind of thing. But trying to trying to break down those barriers and, and tell people that we are nice and we just love what we do kind of thing. We want to get that out as much as possible. So that was difficult in the beginning. Um, but then once we've got, you know, since having our projects, um, I think the main issue is that I want to kind of commit to all of them. And there's just not enough time um, to do as much as we can. So, like, I want to be involved as heavily as possible with all of them. But for, for, for most of them, I just have to kind of take on a more admin role. Um, and then I get to kind of do the fun stuff every now and again. Like um, I did a session in, in HMP Brixton, which was amazing and challenging for me um, on a personal level as well as on a wider level um, and just being able to to really see that impact is quite exciting um, some of the other bigger projects we've worked with so for example the Prince's Trust um, Girl Guiding and, and a few of the other um, larger organizations there are some seriously amazing impacts coming out and we are genuinely changing the lives of some some young people or some older people that yeah, it sounds kind of cheesy, but it has been a really already has been um, quite a, a life changing experience for quite a lot of people. And I think myself included. Yeah, I'm I'm really glad. I absolutely hope every single one of um, these projects um, goes far and um, it can go far in other ways as well, can't it? I remember, um, I believe, reading something that the Prince's Trust 
put out they said that the young people they worked with actually sort of felt safer and more able to open up about things while observing the skies for example so i suppose that's one yeah. example of a knock-on benefit that astronomy can have yeah, that's that's been one of the really lovely and really surprising outcomes. I mean, we you know we haven't kind of looked into any depth as uh, the outcomes with the evaluation team yet, but um, because we're sort of only halfway through, but already we are seeing some surprising outcomes that we didn't really expect. And you like you like you said, um, they the Prince's Trust often use stargazing as an icebreaker for some of these young people who've sometimes never been outside of a city before let alone camping in the countryside and it can it can be quite a relaxing and safe environment for carers where they can kind of switch off from their caring responsibilities and just enjoy the night sky or a planetarium show and just um yeah so it's not in fact it's not really anything to do with the the science at the end of the day it's the fact that we're our projects are genuinely making people feel better about themselves giving them more self-confidence or making them feel happier or safer um and that that's really powerful i think Definitely. Has it um, sometimes been hard to adjust, though, as a professional astronomer and um, then realising that you uh, are working with people who um, like don't necessarily want to become professional or amateur astronomers, uh, but still want something in their life? They still want astronomy to play an important role, just a different one. Has that um, been challenging or difficult to get used to at all? Um, not so much for me. Um, I, in between um, being a professional astronomer and working at the RAS, I was a teacher, a secondary school science teacher, but I did a lot of primary liaison as well. So when I was teaching GCSE physics, I'd always try and get as much astronomy into it as possible. But you're often talking to, to young people who don't want to be there um, and don't really appreciate astronomy in the same way that, that we do. So being able to to have um, you know, so for example, again, the, the prison inmates, um, when I started the session, a few of them were like, why are we doing this? We're never going to go into space or we're never going to be scientists. What's the point kind of thing? And by the end of the session, they were like, I really enjoyed that. And I learned something and I feel I, I was challenged and, um, okay, you know, I'm never going to be an astronaut, but it's, it's, it's opened my eyes to something different and being able to, to sort of, do that has been really really excellent um and, and it does it overlaps a lot with with the teaching that i do anyway so. i hadn't realized um that it would overlap so much that's quite cool um i also noticed that when you've put out well frequently asked questions about the funding um you've stated that you want ras fellows collaborating and as you've already said um there's a network of about four thousand fellows around the world um has that been helpful at all in reaching sort of further flung areas or doing uh, collaborations in other countries yeah so we um we started off trying to get fellows to be named on applications um but because we were working with such obscure charities often they didn't really know anyone which was fair um so then we once we had awarded the money we started to partner fellows with specific um, groups depending on where their interests lay so for example there are a lot of fellows who have either been girl guides or even have been sort of brown owls and things um, and they were really eager to join up with the girl guiding organization and and um, give them their expertise um, so a lot of it has been sort of not retrospectively but we i've been kind of um, like a, a matchmaker between the fellows and the group and there has been a lot of um, excitement for for a lot of the different organizations mostly because people have got personal stories associated with various charities so for example we've got a fellow who's keenly involved with the national autistic society because um, they have a, an autistic relative um, so there's lots of you know there's lots of personal stories out there um and in terms of, well, we've, we've reached the four corners of the UK. We have a project in, in Ireland as well. And now we have an international project in South Africa. Um, and we do have quite a lot of fellows involved in that one who are also kind of involved with our international committee um, or might go to South Africa to use the telescopes or um, involved with the SKA or something. So because I think astronomers are so international, either by by birth or by because research is a very international thing to do it's been relatively easy to get people 
joined up with the with the groups um people have been very positive but we always we, you know we always need more so if you're interested in working with any of the groups specifically or if you're just generally interested in being involved in rs 200s then we always welcome people just to kind of email me and tell me you know i've my expertise is in this and i'm interested in working with the princess trust or whatever um then yeah we're always looking for more volunteers that leads quite nicely into um, my next question, actually. I was about to ask, um, how can people um, get involved in RAS 200, both now and um, in the future? We have a website, ras200.org, which um, you can access from our main ras.ac.uk website as well. Um, and we do try and keep that as up to date as possible with different events that are happening or different calls for volunteers from the different groups um, there's also a lot more detail on each of the 12 project winners um, on there so you can see um, exactly what what areas we're covering um, so please do check that the other way is um, we often put out calls on social media so Facebook and Twitter but um, the easiest way is probably just to email me at the RAS and um, and have a chat with me about, about what you want to do and, and if you can help and um, we can get that all joined up. Um, just before we wrap up this interview, um, thank you so much for your time. Uh, is there anything else you'd like to add um, for our listeners? I've just been really lucky to be involved in RS200. It, it was conceived before I joined the RAS and I was kind of um, told that I was the staff lead, so I didn't have any choice. But it's it's been one of the most... Um, well, it has been challenging, but it has been one of the one of the areas of my work that I'm most proud of. Um, being education outreach and diversity officer spans quite a lot of areas, but actually I'm able to do all three things by working with um, the RS200 project winners. And I know that our bicentenary is in 2020, but we do plan to continue to work with these groups and other groups, if possible, way past 2020. And um, hopefully that that legacy will continue. I really hope it does. It all sounds fantastic. Thank you so much for your time. And uh, to our listeners, you can go on the RAS 200 website, get involved. We hope this inspires you and thank you. Thank you. Meteor showers are always popular among stargazers, although it has to be said that those taking place in summer are more popular than those in winter. But if you wrap up warm, you can see some great shooting stars and maybe even see more than you would in summer. When we see a shooting star, we're looking at the demise of a tiny speck of space dust, usually from the tail of a comet, as it collides with the Earth's upper atmosphere. Though typically no bigger than a grain of sand, these particles are hurtling through space at maybe 70 kilometres a second. So there's a lot of heat produced, which creates a brief trail in the night sky. It looks as if a star has been dislodged and fallen to earth, hence the popular name of shooting star. In fact, the grains that produce meteor showers always burn up long before they reach Earth's surface. Although meteors can occur at random throughout the night, there are certain nights when you can always see more. This happens when the Earth passes through a dust cloud from a particular comet, though the comet itself has probably long gone from our skies. On these occasions there are more meteors coming from a particular point in the sky, and we see what's called a meteor shower. They are named after the constellation where they appear to radiate from. Around 17th of November, we get meteors appearing to come from Leo, so they are called the Leonids. And around 14th of December, we see the Geminids from Gemini. Although they have these names, the meteors can appear in any part of the sky, so there's no advantage in looking directly towards that constellation. In fact, it's better to look about 40 degrees away from it, so the meteors appear as long streaks rather than short ones. The actual point that they appear to come from is known as the radiant. These days the press and in particular news websites make a lot of fuss about meteor showers, which we astronomers have been observing for years. Often it's clickbait to get you to click on the story and see the ads, so they often make the event sound more exciting than the reality. You might think that the sky will be full of brilliant shooting stars, but usually it won't. 
Astronomers describe the expected rate to be seen as the ZHR, that is, zenithal hourly rate. This is the number you'd see if you were an attentive observer in a perfect sky, with the radiant in the zenith and no obstructions down to the horizon. In practice, the sky is a lot less than perfect, the radiant isn't overhead, and quite a lot of the view is obstructed by buildings or trees. So while the ZHR for December's Geminid meteors is predicted to be up to 120 per hour, suggesting a meteor every 30 seconds, you have to take into account that about 1am the radiant will only be 55 degrees up, so you'd see only 80% of that number. Then if your sky isn't perfect, you miss all the fainter meteors and maybe see only a quarter of the ZHR. Finally, unless you're on top of a mountain or in a particularly treeless part of East Anglia, you'll miss some due to obstructions, not to mention any clouds that happen to come across. Even so, that gives you maybe 20 to 24 meteors an hour, if you don't fall asleep or whatever. So maybe one every two or three minutes on average. But also bear in mind that meteors come at random and are not evenly spaced out. Meteor observers know only too well that even on the shower night there can be long gaps when you don't see anything, so intervals of 10 or 15 minutes aren't unusual, and neither, by the same token, is it unusual to see two meteors appearing within a second or two of each other. You might think that these two are somehow related, but bear in mind that if they are just two seconds apart and are travelling at 70 kilometres a second, the grains have been separated by 140 kilometres. That's like a grain of sand on the beach at Scarborough being related to one on the beach at Skegness. But don't be put off by these apparently gloomy statistics. The Geminids in particular are probably the most prolific shower of the year, and if it's clear, get prepared and try to spend at least an hour out there watching for them. The rate for the Leonids in November is a bit lower, with a ZHR of 10 to 15 an hour. But even so, they're worth a look. In both cases, moonlight isn't a big problem in 2018, but it's worth waiting until around midnight before you start observing. In the case of the Leonids, the radiant doesn't even rise until about 10.30pm. To make the most of your efforts, make a note of what you see. The basic information is the time of appearance of each meteor, its radiant, that is, whether it's coming from the shower or is a random or sporadic meteor, and its brightness compared with the stars. There's much more about these showers and how to observe them on the SPA website, so go to www.popastro.com and follow the Observing Topic link to the Meteor section. Well, that's all we've got for this edition of The Sound of Astronomy. Thanks to Osnat, Paul and our interviewees Sheila Kanani and Yossi Luntama. The music was by Carolus Rex and Kevin McLeod. We've got more interviews already in the can, so keep an eye open for the next edition of The Sound of Astronomy.